الجزيرة بودكاست The last time Suke Peña heard from her 18-year-old son Nestor, a Venezuelan refugee working in Western Colombia, he was promising to text her as soon as he finished his shift. He told me, Mom, I'm leaving because I'm going to give you what you want. It was May 16th, 2020, just another workday. His dream was to fix the house the way that I wanted it, to finish the fence and to build the second floor. Nestor was last seen leaving his construction job in the city of Tuluá to meet some friends for lunch. He left behind his phone, his passport, all of his personal belongings. No one has seen him since. There have been hundreds of documented cases just like Nestor's. So, why are so many Venezuelan refugees going missing in Colombia? I'm Kevin Hurton, in from Alika Bilal, and this is The Take. Nestor's story is a reminder of the dangers that Venezuelan refugees face in search of a better life, which reporter Cristina Noriega has been covering. I am a freelance journalist based in Bogota, Colombia. I write and photograph stories about human rights, migration, and the Colombian armed conflict. So, Cristina, I wonder if we could start by giving our listeners a little bit of background And maybe you could help explain why someone like Nestor would leave Venezuela and go to Colombia in the first place. In recent years in Venezuela, what we've seen is a terrible economic and humanitarian crisis that has caused more than 7 million migrants and asylum seekers to flee the country. And... What we've seen is that because of mismanagement and the governments of Hugo Chavez and later Nicolás Maduro, the value of the currency, the Bolívar, plummeted, basic foods became scarce. A large portion of the Venezuelan population was plunged into poverty. And this is exactly what the Peña family was going through at the time when they decided to migrate in 2019. Nestor was living with his siblings and his mother in a little town called Mota in the western state of Trujillo. His mother worked at a restaurant, and what she has told me is that they began to feel the impact of the crisis around 2018. If you had money to buy products, it wasn't enough. And when there were products to buy, it was difficult because we had to wait in lines to buy a kilo of rice, flour, or the grocery kits they assembled there, butter, things like that. She begins to describe having to wait in line for hours to buy a kilogram of rice, of flour, of butter from the store. She has eight children, including Nestor. There were no chances of a future for them anymore. Many times I had to wait in line from one day until the next at the supermarket to buy something for the house. And they decided that they'll find better economic opportunities elsewhere in Latin America. Some of Tsuke's children are living in Chile, Peru, some are still in Venezuela. 
And Nestor, when they left, was still underage, a child who was cheerful, who she was close to. She says that later on when he left the home, they would speak to each other every day. They just had a very strong relationship. When they decide to leave Venezuela and head to Colombia, what he says is that he wants to help out his mom. That's his dream. He starts working at a local mall selling shoes. But what he says is that he's not making enough income in order to save up money for his dream, which Zuge later told me is that he wanted to help his mother finish the construction of their home in Venezuela for them to eventually return and have enough money saved up to start a joint business so that his mother would never have to work for anyone again. But in Colombia, Nestor and his mother found the situation for Venezuelans there was full of obstacles. I asked Cristina about it. I remember the last time I was in Bogota, just being very struck by refugees from Venezuela all over the place. Um, some were doing well, but a lot weren't. A lot of people living on the streets, a lot of people looking for work anywhere. Can you talk about what this issue is like just day-to-day in Colombia? At this moment, around 2.5 million Venezuelan migrants are now living in Colombia. And Colombia is a country that already has economic problems and uh, issues of conflict already. Colombia has been one of the most uh, welcoming countries in Latin America in that sense. They now have a sort of temporary protective status that lasts for 10 years. But what most people on the ground will tell you is that it's a struggle just to obtain any type of employment. Right. I mean, look, refugees are at risk all over the world, no doubt. But Colombia has this unique history of forced disappearances. More than 120,000 people have reportedly disappeared there in just the last five decades. 120,000 people. How do you explain this? There has been an ongoing armed conflict since the 1960s where various armed actors from leftist rebels to right-wing paramilitaries to even the state have been involved in terrible human rights abuses. And what we've seen is that forced disappearances became common as a way to conceal their crimes. The effect on the family members of the victims is is terrible. They describe it as one of the worst human rights abuses that they face in Colombia because there is no certainty as to what happened to their loved one. There's the possibility that they could have been killed, or there's the possibility that they are still alive somewhere. But they say that because this is a a crime that's hard to report, they imagined that there might be double that amount of victims in Colombia. I mean, 2016 is a really important year because that's the year that the FARC signed a peace agreement. The moment millions of Colombians thought they would never see. Members of the nearly 7,000-strong FARC rebel army laying down their weapons. President Juan Manuel Santos received the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to end that five-decade-old war. 
So I understand these forced disappearances in the context of the Civil War, but how do you explain why they seem to be still happening? Right. In 2016, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, which is a Marxist rebel group founded in 1964, they signed a peace deal with the Colombian government. The peace deal involves various provisions that are intended to resolve the root causes of the war. But what we see in the aftermath of the signing of the peace deal is that many of those provisions aren't implemented. What we've seen in recent years is that many of these armed groups are now competing over illegal drug trafficking trade routes, illegal gold mining. Many of these economies that the FARC used to control, one of the critiques from human rights organizations is that the state was supposed to invest in many of these communities that have been most affected by the war and was supposed to fill the void that was left by the FARC. But this didn't happen. Mm. So now we've seen a proliferation of armed groups in the country. So why are refugees like Nestor Pena such an obvious target for disappearances? Because it's so hard for them to find any type of formal employment, they'll often either go to very remote areas, desperately looking for some type of work. What some experts explain to me is that, for example, a Colombian who has grown up here and who understands the armed conflict because it's always existed, understands that entering certain conflict zones means that you have to follow certain rules imposed by illegal armed groups. Sometimes migrants will enter these areas without knowing how they're supposed to, quote-unquote, like behave. But it mostly has to do with the fact that they are among the most vulnerable people within Colombia. Christina, the figures on how many people missing differ, but I imagine it's nearly impossible to get a true count for something like this. What are some of the challenges in documenting these disappearances? Well, first of all, even counting the forced disappearances of Colombians has been so difficult because for a long time, the Colombian state didn't want to acknowledge that these forced disappearances were related to the armed conflict. Mm. So they might say that Someone disappeared because they went out to a bar and got drunk and who knows what happened to that person. But through insistence from the victims, they were able to change the penal code in order for it to acknowledge forced disappearance as a crime in Colombia. But many Venezuelan migrants don't know that a forced disappearance is an actual crime. They are simply not familiar with the Colombian criminal system at all. And what human rights groups were telling me is that because of this lack of familiarity with like the criminal justice system, they often don't report these crimes. Sometimes they don't report these crimes out of fear as well. What Zuge was telling me is that she decided to report this crime, but two other missing youth disappeared along with her son and the family members of those two missing youth are actually facing death threats and have been told not to talk about 
the disappearance of these three youth. More on Nestor's disappearance and what details have emerged in his case since, after the break. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day, with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Christina, tell us about Nestor Pena. May 16th, 2020, he's now working construction. What do we know about what happened that day? Well, before Nestor disappears, he arrives in the town of Tulua. And he arrives there because he's looking for employment. His friend tells him that he might be able to find a job at a construction site there. And the way Sugate tells it is that he had only been working at the construction site for two days when he disappears. What happens on May 16, 2020, is that around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Zuge receives a message via WhatsApp from her son, and he says something to the effect that he'll talk to her once he leaves work that day. She doesn't hear from him the rest of the day. And then the next day, she also doesn't receive a reply. She starts to get very worried. Nestor had his belongings locked up in a room. He still had his new shoes that he had recently bought. He still had his cell phone, his Venezuelan passport, his Colombian ID even a small stash of money, everything was still there. Even at the construction site, all the tools were there. Nothing was stolen. Suge says, three years have passed and they haven't found any remains. He hasn't appeared in a morgue. She knows nothing about him. It's like he he vanished. She says that even if they had killed him, and thrown him into a river, some sort of remains would have shown up by now. But she doesn't know anything about him, and that's why she still believes that he could have been recruited by an illegal arms group in Tulua. So what would happen if he was recruited? He would have no access to the outside world? Has there been any reporting on what life is like? Has anyone ever made it back from that kind of experience? Yes. Whenever someone is forcibly recruited into an armed group, they're cut off from being able to speak to the outside world because any type of communication could compromise their location and the safety of the armed group. They're also prohibited from even leaving the camp. What Sugei believes is that he could have been recruited into one of these armed groups and now he's being prohibited from being able to communicate with anyone outside of that camp. Okay, so then his mother is dealing with this nightmare. She has no idea what happened to her son and she goes to the authorities and that doesn't go well. 
I went to ask questions every Monday, until one day they attended to me. They sent me inside the office and a prosecutor told me, in a rough way, that he was going to be honest with me, that I should stop wasting my time going to the prosecutor's office because this was one of many cases in Colombia of disappeared people, and that I had to take into account that my son was a foreigner, that he was not Colombian. So she becomes very discouraged. And she replies that, yes, she's a migrant, yes, she's a foreigner, but she's still a human being, and she still has hope that she will find her son. Last year, she received a notification that her case had finally been appointed to a prosecutor there. But the most difficult part of this process for Suke is not knowing what's happening in the case, to be in the dark. Yeah. It's just so awful. Refugees like Nestor are some of the most vulnerable people on the planet. They're clearly being targeted and exploited. How can the international community do a better job to help protect them? Well, what we've seen also in recent years is that many of the migrants and refugees are now migrating northbound to the U.S., because of the difficulties and the challenges that they faced in Latin America. One of the recommendations that I've seen is that there needs to be more resources for the Colombian state to better guarantee employment for Venezuelan migrants. They need more financing to provide humanitarian aid, to provide better job opportunities, to provide more protections for Venezuelan migrants. Yeah, and it's in everyone's interest to get the resources there because if if Venezuelan refugees find that they are at risk in Colombia or can't survive economically in Colombia, they're going to go somewhere else. Then the issues travel north. Getting back to Nestor Peña, you reported that he had been working to save enough money to build his mother a house back in Venezuela. But... You talk to her, and I guess that's on hold now, isn't it? Suge has other children who are also migrants living in countries such as Chile and Peru. And now that Nestor is missing, they've told her that she should return to Venezuela, return to her home, even if it's half-built in Trujillo, and to restart her life there again. But what she has said time and again is that she will not go back to Venezuela until she finds her missing son. In the last year, what she's seen is that there are Venezuelan mothers living in Venezuela who have missing children in Colombia, and it's hard for them to continue that search from another country. So what she says is that she prefers to stay in Cúcuta to continue to reach out to the authorities as much as she can and to wait until she finds out what happened to her son. I mean, we are human beings. I didn't lose a dog or a cat. Either way, like I told him, if you lose a pet, it hurts. I know I'm Venezuelan. I told him, but we're still human beings. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Khalid Sultan and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, with Miranda Lynn, Chloe K. Lee, 
Amy Walters, Ashish Malhotra, and Sonia Bagat. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan, Alexander Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio.